You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. You're listening to The Sports Fix. A Sports Fix Tuesday, Tommy, by phone. I'm in studio, and we've got so much to catch up on because it's been since Thursday uh, since we talked. I didn't do a podcast yesterday. I did plan to take the day off. I would have had to take the day off anyway. For those of you that already heard me um, uh, regale about my back injury from the weekend, you can check out for 20 seconds. Um, but I wrecked my back, Tommy. You know, you've known me for a long time, and you remember some of those days in studio where I had some back issues, and I'd have to stand up and and almost do the show standing up every once in a while. It hasn't. I haven't had this happen to me in a long time. It's been a couple of years since I got myself into position where. It's hard for me to sit. It's hard for me to drive for more than 15 minutes. I'm on everything right now. I'm on a super anti-inflammatory. I've got some pain meds like you did. Um, I'm not going to tell you which ones because it's very, very sensitive information. Very private. <laughs> <laughs> but I um, I have not been in this much bat. For those of you that are just joining the program, I've had two lower back surgeries, but both of those were more than 10 years ago now. You know, I, I had two uh, lower back L5-S1 discectomies, and, you know, my orthopedic at the time told me, look, you're going to end up having to get your back fused at some point. And he sort of suggested then, it could be, you know, you'll get another decade out of this, hopefully, as long as you don't do stupid things and keep your core strong and all these different things, which I haven't done consistently. Um, but, oh my God, I, I knew exactly what the issue was. If I'm in a car for a long period of time and I get out and I go basically right to the first tee, which is what happened Sunday, without Advil, without sort of warming up, then I'm at risk, and by about the fifth or sixth hole, I was in trouble Sunday. Um, so much so that I did have to get some of these pain meds. But I'm good right now. I feel really good. You know what I just found out about my studio here and the table in which I have my microphone and my desktop and a lot of different equipment? I just found that this is a stand or sit table. Did you, do, you, do you have one of those? Everything I own is sit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Everything yes. I own is sit. Because sitting is the new smoking. Um, Tommy, my t- I, I didn't have it plugged in, but there's been this thing on the edge of the table, the this little button thing with an up arrow and a down arrow. And I've always wondered what the hell it was. Well, apparently this table goes up. And it comes down. If you want to stand and work, you can stand and work. Or you can put it down and you can sit and work. It just hadn't been plugged in yet. So I, uh, you know we had some phone issues here. And so I had the guy in and he was fixing the phone. And so he said, hey, uh, you know, your, your up, down, stand, sit isn't plugged in. Did you know that? Did you even know you had that? I said, I had no idea. So this is really cool because I can, I don't know if you can hear this or not. I can hear you. Can you hear that noise? That's going up. And No, I don't hear that noise. Then it comes down. Oh, I know you hear me. Yeah. And anyway, uh, I'm able to stand now and, and do, the, do the show, which is good news today while I'm recovering, which I'm going to be fine. Uh, no, no need to, to feel um, any empathy towards me. I'm going to be fine. 
I've never uh, yesterday was a planned day off. Um, so I have still never missed a day of work for any injury and maybe only one or two for sickness over the last 16 or 17 years. I'm proud of that, as you know. Um, you know, you, know, you, you sound like a train wreck. <laughs> All the time. You are I know. You're stuck. Like you've done something. Right. <laughs> well, you know, the meds are helping this morning. The meds are helping. Got a little uh, painkiller in me. Again, I would, if you had shared your painkiller information with me, you know, a few months ago, I'd be, I'd be wide open to sharing it with you, but I'm not going to because I was very well, upset. Well, listen, listen, listen. Wait a couple of days and the DEA starts knocking on your door, buddy. Right. Then you'll be sorry. I wanted to tell you, because I mentioned this to you before we got started, and I asked you if you had seen a movie that I watched over the weekend for the first time. The name of the movie is The Master. It's with Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman and Amy Adams, and there's probably another person that I'm forgetting. Um, It's one of those Paul Thomas Anderson movies. I had never seen it. I'm a big Joaquin Phoenix fan. I really love the Joker. I forgot if we talked about that or not. I'm, I'm assuming that we did. Um, I think the Joker was outstanding in terms of Joaquin Phoenix's latest movie. I had never seen The Master. And my son, Corbin, said to me, you've got to watch this movie. And so for whatever reason, I sat down and I watched the movie over the weekend. And I've heard how great this movie is. Now, you you saw it, you've seen it, and you really liked it, right? It's from 20, yes. 2013, 2012, something like that it was made. So 20, it's, 2012. Okay. Uh, basically, look, uh, I like pretty much almost everything Paul Thomas Anderson does. Brilliant. I mean, he did, he did There Will Be Blood. One of my favorites. Which, well, tremendous movie. The Master, I loved. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman was... God rest I mean, his soul. It may have been... It may have been his best performance ever. And it's sort of like loosely based on an L. Rod Hubbard kind of character. You know, the whole yeah. the Dianetic thing? Yeah. Scientology and all. It's kind of, he's kind of that kind of character, an L. Rod Hubbard kind of figure. Because you're, you're saying Philip Seymour Hoffman, Hoffman yes. is. Yeah, yes. because it's very cultish. Yes. Um, so you really liked it. Absolutely, absolutely. But I mean, it, it, it's emotionally—it's it, an emotional investment, you know. Uh, and uh, not everybody who—I I know people who have watched it who didn't like it. Uh, but for me, I mean, I—I I, now I want to see it again. So, I will tell you that the first hour and a half was phenomenal. And, you know, you're just sitting there mesmerized by another one of these incredible Joaquin Phoenix, you know, performances. But also the movie's so interesting. And you see, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman um, as his character. He's basically, you know, this this know-everything, figured-it-all-out, you know, past lives, future lives, the whole thing guru that's got a mini-cult going, you know, from town to town. And... He has taken on Joaquin Phoenix as sort of a, a a client, if you will, but somebody he's gotten very close to by accident. You know, Joaquin Phoenix has this major drinking problem. He's a world he's a World War II uh, Pacific veteran, and he sort of stumbles on to Philip Seymour Hoffman's boat. Well, it wasn't his boat, as we found out later. Um, but 
I loved, like I'm riveted for the first hour and 40 minutes. And then the last 20 minutes or last half hour came. And I still can't figure out why it ended so... For those of you that haven't seen it, I don't mean to ruin it for you, and you may have a completely different interpretation anyway, but I I thought it was such a weak ending to what was a great movie. By the way, Rami Malek's in it, too. This was Rami Malek right after he did The Pacific, and before, obviously, he became the big star with with um, with Bohemian Rhapsody in, in, in the last year and a half. But I, I just didn't... I just didn't get... The, I mean, we we understand, Tommy, that Freddie Quell, which is the character played by Joaquin Phoenix, ends up essentially, you know, breaking free of Philip Seymour Hoffman's, you know, uh, lock, if you will, and he decides to move on with his own life, and he finds in that very last scene a, a new woman after he finds out that his the girl Doris, who was this 16-year-old that before he went to the war. She seemed to be in love with him, but he realized she was too young. He came back, promised he always would. I thought that scene with the mother was great, where the mother, you can tell, really liked um, Freddie Quell, even though he's clearly, you know, his mother's insane and in an insane asylum. He's had a lot of stuff, including a major drinking problem, the effects of war, the effects of of mental, uh, you know, uh, uh, mental instability. Um, but God, it was such a disappointing ending to what was a great first three quarters of a movie. Do you remember what I'm talking about? I'd have to go back and watch it again. I know basically at the end. Well, I don't. I don't want to reveal the end. Uh, you know, in case people want to watch it, I'd have to go back and watch it again. I didn't feel as unsatisfied with the ending as you do. Okay, but it's not fresh in my mind either. Um, anyway, but I recommend, I recommend people watch it. I I, I do. I do too. You know, a lot of people didn't like, um, a a lot of my friends didn't like there will be blood, which I thought was brilliant. And of course, you know, Daniel day Lewis is phenomenal. Um, in that movie. I loved that movie. That movie start to finish is one of the best ever. Um, and if you don't know Paul Thomas Anderson from either there will be blood or the master, he did boogie nights too. Which I'm assuming most yes, of you have great, seen. Great movie. Great movie. Yeah. I mean, you make a great movie about a serious great movie about pornography. <laughs> pornography. Yeah. And about about a, 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 a how big how big a guy's dick is. Yeah. And uh, and, and, and that's hard. That's hard. That. That's hard to do with an R yes. next to it. Yes. <laughs> but but you do it. I mean that that again. I mean his movies stick with you. Uh, you know, Boogie Nights. It just sticks with me that the scene where they're playing uh where they're trying to buy the coke from the guy right and you got uh jesse's girl rick the rick springfield song playing in the background (laughs) good call good call on jesse's girl rick springfield breaking away from soap opera fame to record a single well, I knew Rick Springfield had a single back in the 60s before that I called th- Speak uh, to the Sky. You know what? I think I did know that. But do you know where my first Rick Springfield uh, experience came? What? General Hospital when I was in college. Okay. General Hospital, you know, General Hospital is probably the most popular 
of a, that a daytime soap opera's ever been. The Luke and Laura era of the 80s. Some of you will know what I'm talking about. And Rick Springfield ended up becoming uh, a significant figure on General Hospital in the 80s. And then you came know, out my, with that single. My, my soap opera going to college was uh, One Life to Live. Well, one life, one, to, one life to Live in college was when I was watching soap operas. All my children yeah. was on at one. One Life to Live was on at two. And then General Hospital was on at three. Yeah, I in college, I watched soap operas. I didn't watch all three of those. General Hospital became an addiction for a lot of, a lot of people back then, especially people that were younger and had you know free time, like a college student. You know, did. Um, but the Luke and Laura, um, you know, relationship and drama is probably th- their wedding. And I don't know what year that was. I don't know. It's I think it's still the highest rated daytime program that isn't sports of all time. I think I think that's true. Of the daytime programs, I would think you're right. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to look that up here because I am. Luke and Laura, General Hospital. All right, from okay, so from 1979 to 1988, General Hospital had more viewers than any other daytime soap opera. It rose to the top of the ratings in the early 80s, in part thanks to the monumentally popular super couple, super couple Luke and Laura, whose 1981 wedding brought in 30 million viewers and remains the highest-rated hour in American soap opera history. Now, that's different from what I described, but that maybe that's what I remember. You know, 30 million wouldn't be a super, but, uh, you know, it, well, first of all, 30 million is a lot for any daytime program, including, you know, a big football game, you know, which probably I'm assuming that football games are the highest rated day programming, um, you know, shows in television history because it's al- almost yeah. everything's NFL anyway in terms of the highest rated programs. But 30, 30 million viewers, Tommy, in nineteen eighty one for that wedding. That's amazing. That I mean, are, I, I think are there any real soap operas left on network TV? I, I think ha- there's one. I have no idea. I haven't. I don't know. I haven't watched a soap opera probably in thirty years. Certainly, tw- yeah, every bit of thirty years. Um. I have no idea. I would maybe. Um, it looks like General Hospital is still on, at least according to Wikipedia. Okay. It looks like it's still on. Why have have soap operas just gone away for what? Yeah. Day, daytime, you know, live talk daytime programming. Talk talk shows. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, everybody's got a talk show. Of course they do. How did yeah. we get to that? Oh, Rick Springfield. Yeah, Doctor yeah. Noah Drake on uh, General Hospital was Rick Springfield and I didn't I think I knew this Tommy but I but I don't remember his um, music career in the 60s but you do I have I have speak to the sky on my uh, playlist on my phone it's a, it's a catchy song. Is it good? Uh, go yeah. back and watch the master again. When when you, I mean, you have time after uh, you know a, a, a walk and a few calls. Go watch watch that movie and tell me if you think I'm right. I just was disappointed at the ending. That's all. Philip Seymour Hoffman, no. but in Charlie Wilson's War was so good. God, was oh, he God. was he a great yeah. actor? 
Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights, of that, course. That role he played in Boogie Nights. Yeah. 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 A- absolutely. Uh, I'm watching this series now called Yellowstone. You oh, hear my it? God. I, I've heard about it. Uh, you know, before I watched this movie over the weekend, I was looking at should I start a series? And I went and read like the first um, couple of descriptions of the first two episodes of Yellowstone, which Kevin Costner's in and others. And I thought about starting it. So tell me, is it worth it? I think it's worth it. It took me a couple of episodes to really get invested in the characters. And I'd like it. That said, it's got this flaw that other series like it have had. First of all, Everybody, everybody in the show is evil. There's <laughs> really? not, not a good person to be found anywhere. But even evil people like to make a joke once in a while, you know? Yeah. There's not a smile in the whole series. Not one. Man, that's kind of like that series. It was another <laughs> Western um, that I watched a few years ago. It may have been one full season on HBO. And it was really Deadwood? dark. No, not Deadwood. Um, well, that's it's it's pretty dark. I mean, there's not a, there's no redeeming qualities in anybody anywhere. But I'm, I'm caught up in it now. You know, I'm, I'm on the season two now, so uh, I'm into it. Um, and I always liked Kevin Costner, and I like the whole. You know, I had no idea that Montana was full of so many rich people. Oh, my God, yeah. I, I had no idea. Oh, yeah. Well, it's just like, um, uh, it's just like, well, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, you know, you take those big western towns that are just, you know, among the wealthiest, you know, zip codes in our country. Jackson Hole, Wyoming is. Aspen, Colorado is. But Montana's got a couple of those as well. Uh, that's one of four states I've never been to is Montana. I've been to Montana a few times, but the first time I went to Montana, I think I've told you about this trip. My, I was 21, junior year, college, summer. My buddy Mike and I basically did this drive-away service um, where we drove a family that had moved from D.C. to uh, actually Northern California. We drove their car. They paid for all the gas. And the idea was back then, I don't even know if they have these things anymore, where you drive their car out for them. And they told us before we took it, take as much time as you want. And we did. And one of the – we spent – I'll never forget this. So Yellowstone Park – is Wyoming and then I guess it would be Southwest Montana, basically, is Yellowstone. I'd have to look at a map to see exactly. But I remember we were in, we, we, we drove all night from wherever we were. It's, it's like the we're already a, a few days into the trip minimum. And um, we pulled the car over in Yellowstone Park and fell asleep. It was in June. We woke up the next morning shivering as our car was covered with snow. <laughs> this is in June. And there are, um, there are mule deer, which are the big, huge deer, um, walking around the car. I mean, big animals walking around the car. 
and we were like, holy shit. Um, <laughs> we are out here. We're out here in it now. I'm, I'm pulling up a map to see if I have that right. I'm pretty sure Yellowstone is mostly in Wyoming, but a sliver of it is in, if it's in Wyoming, which is south of Montana, it would be northwest Wyoming and southwest Montana. Why can't I find a map of Yellowstone? Um, anyway, I think that's it. I may have that wrong where most of it's in Montana and just a sliver of it is in Wyoming, but I think I have that right. I think I have that right. Could be wrong. Uh, anyway, I can't find them. Oh, here it is. I'm right. I'm, I'm right. Here it is. Yellowstone National Park looks like it's mostly in Wyoming. And yes, there's a sliver of it in Montana. And somehow we were in the Montana portion of the park. And that was the first time in Montana. Tommy, that trip, we were on our way. We had made our way from Rapid City, South Dakota, where we had spent a few days because there was a great dog track in Rapid City. So we were there and then we were in Yellowstone. And then the next stop for us was Tahoe because we had to go to Tahoe where a buddy of ours, his sister lived in Truckee, California, which is part of Lake Tahoe. And she was moving back to the East Coast and we had worked out that we were going to pick up her car, which was a Ford Escort. I'll never forget it. We drove a Honda, a Honda Accord out picked up her Ford Escort in Truckee, California, and she said the same thing, I'll pay for your gas, and she gave us, back then you needed a gas card, if you recall. Um, right. And we had a gas card from her for the for that car, and then we had that car basically, and uh, we told her, if we take your car back, we may not be back until August, and we weren't. We left in mid-June, we were back in mid-August, it was a two-month trip. We, we spent a lot of time in Northern California at my buddy's uncle's place, which was uh, in a rather beautiful location um, in, uh, in, in that whole Pebble Beach uh, area down there. But, um, and then we spent probably a week to two weeks in Southern California. But that was the first time I was what in a Montana. Trip. That was a, a trip. trip. That was a trip. We were looking um, years ago. We were looking for the pictures of of that trip, and I think he's got them. I thought I had them in a box, but he must have them. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a, it was it was a great trip that included a lot of gambling, and then um, a forty eight hour. I think I've told you this before. A forty eight hour nonstop trip from L A. to D C. It was mid-August. We were done. We were ready to get home. We were out of money. We had a gas card and maybe like 50 bucks. And we drove 48 straight hours from L.A. to D.C. I'll never forget we left on a Friday at 7 and arrived Sunday night, 10 o'clock East Coast time. We had two gas cards. We had a gas card and we had 50 bucks for some food along the way. And that was it. We took two-hour shifts and we drove 48 straight hours. God's honest truth that you can make it from L.A. to D.C. in 48 hours. That is some trucking, baby. Oh, we were trucking. We were trucking. We had had it. You know, we we had been gone for a while at that point, and we were ready to get home. Plus, we had no money. And basically, the promise to our parents were that we wouldn't wire for money because my they, they didn't really, you know, they wanted my father wanted me working that summer. What do you mean? You, right. You, you know. Get a job. No, 
we're gonna try. We're gonna see what happens with this thing. It was it was it was a it was a blast. But yes, yeah. there is uh, there's money in Montana, brother. There's some real money in those places. I mean that that surprised me. I didn't know that. And there's obviously a lot of you know, I mean, real tough rural towns too that are probably really yeah. in trouble. Anyway, yeah, well, I like I like the series so far. I, I wouldn't say it's a great series, but I like it. I've been to Helena. That's the other place I've been to. Went there uh, to, I want to say it was Smith's, a supermarket chain, back in the 90s. Um, nice place to be from. Wouldn't be a great place to live in, necessarily. <laughs> but places like Bozeman, you know, and a lot of those, um, you know, ranch places. And, God, it's it's beautiful country out there. I'll tell you what, I mean... We're going to see what happens with our cities, you know, um, because of COVID-19 in particular and population density. Um, but a lot of those places probably seem pretty attractive to a lot of people right now. Yeah, probably. All right, quick word about Hydrant, then we'll get to some topics for the day. Uh, top performers in business and sports often attribute their success to their morning routine, whether it's waking up early, setting their goals for the day, exercise, or meditation. But not everybody's got the time to do it all. With Hydrant, you can jumpstart your mornings. Did you know that 75% of us are walking around everyday life chronically dehydrated? We're suffering needlessly from frequent headaches, energy slumps, and poor focus. Does It does doesn't have to be that way. If you want to kick the coffee habit, but you're worried about your energy levels to avoid the morning sluggishness and that midday slump, you need to make sure you're hydrated. That's where hydrant comes in. They've created flavored electrolyte packets. You mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs, sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc. They are the ones that help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day long. There's no synthetic coloring. There's no artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan and it's tested. It was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. You can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. And for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com. That's Drink and Hydrant is spelled H-Y-D-R-A-N-T.com. Use my promo code Sheehan, S-H-E-E-H-A-N, at drinkhydrant.com, and you'll get 25% off your first order. That's drinkhydrant.com slash Sheehan. All right, Tommy, are we going to have a baseball season? Uh, They never got it together uh, in terms of the economics, uh, so it looks like the owners are going to impose what they're able to do contractually, impose a season on the players. 60 games is what's being discussed. But first, the players need to sign off on all of the health and safety protocols and pledge to arrive at home stadiums by July 1st for a deal to actually happen. And that's supposed to happen at some point later today. Yeah, basically what it looks like the uh, union has done is trading labor peace, a better deal for postseason money, uh, more money on the table now 
for the chance to file a grievance where they think, uh, be, uh, arguing that the owners uh, did not negotiate in good faith and they're convinced that they'll win and get, I don't know, $500 million or more out of an award like that. I mean, it really doesn't seem for a partner, and, you know, they've tried to be partners over the years. It's really shitty when you think about it for a partner to, uh, whose strategy is to say, well, I can make a lot more money doing this and, and basically destroy the product at the same time. You're talking about the players. Yes. Yeah. The players. So on Saturday, I did a podcast on Saturday, and one of the things in, in preparation for the podcast was there wasn't a deal done, and it looked like you know, the owners were stuck on 60 games and the players wanted 70. And I was like, wow, I mean, is this thing really not going to get done because of 10 games and it's going to force the owners to impose their situation? And I, I went back and I didn't, I'm not going to tell you that I read the whole March 26th agreement, but I read this section of the March 26th agreement that has been the crux of the issue for the last three months. On March 26th, there was an agreement between the players and the owners on the parameters of a season that at that point was very likely going to not only be delayed, but shortened. And the deal was for the owners to pay the players their full salaries on a pro rata basis. So there was one stipulation to the deal. It was a separate section of the agreement. And it said essentially for the games to resume the commissioner's office and union would would discuss in good faith the economic feasibility of playing games in the absence of spectators or if games had to be played at substitute neutral sites. That section's right there in the agreement, that the owners and the players would sit back down, negotiate in good faith in the event that 30 to 35% of their revenue stream was gone because of no spectators and no home sites, et cetera, but really no spectators. And so for whatever reason, I can't figure it out. For whatever reason, the players believe that that section didn't have anything to do with them taking a reduced salary in the event of no spectators. And the owners, of course, feel that that's exactly what that section was put in there for. That in the event, by the time we get to, to play, if we can't generate... 30 to 35% of our normal revenue because we can't get live spectators into the stadium, well, then we're going to sit down and we're going to figure something out. And you're going to participate in the downside of all of that. Uh, look, the owners, only if they came down five games and they met in the middle at 65 games, it's peanuts what they would be giving up. The players, the same thing. Uh, I'm sorry, if the owners came up to 65 games and if the players went down to 65 games. But I'll be honest with you, I can't imagine how any player would read that section and not think that they were referring to payroll. The single biggest cost against one of the biggest revenue sources. I don't get that, but... The, the point so that's what this has been about since day one this the players thinking they didn't have to give up anything they had an agreement and the owner saying yeah but we had this section that said if we didn't have spectators we would sit down and work a different deal out because we were going to miss be missing 30 to 35 percent of our revenue I blame both of them, though, Tommy, because the math on the owners coming to, coming up to 65 games works out to about $4.2 million per team. That's nothing. I know. 
I agree nothing. with you. Look, I mean, it, it's a shared blame and responsibility. But like I've said before, uh, and particularly on the union side, you've got two bad leaders. I don't think Rob Manfred is a very good leader as a commissioner, and I really think Tony Clark is overmatched as a union boss. I mean, except for Gene Upshaw, there's never been, I don't think, a player who has run one of these unions. I mean, certainly not in baseball. Uh, well, who was who was uh, the famous baseball union leader of the seventies? Well, Mar- Marvin Ma- Marvin Miller. Yeah, Marvin Miller, right. And then Donald Fear after that, right. Uh, and now, and and now, and there was Michael Michael Silver, I think I forget what is he, Michael. Uh, in between them, there was a guy who was very well liked and respected who died unfortunately. Uh, and uh, now it's Tony Clark, who I think played fifteen years in the major leagues, and I just think he's overmatched. And it's, you've got bad leadership heading for things that are going to be even uglier uh, once this thing gets by them. Well, you're right. I mean, in, in looking at this, the, the owners you know, the owners could cancel the season altogether, but then there would be major grievances. They're going to what appeared to be the largest number of games without an expanded postseason, which is 60. There was a discussion that they could go as low as 48. and, and but, but almost everything I've read, these players, they may go back to work, and we'll get to the, the health stuff here in a second. They may go back to work, but there's a grievance forthcoming. And this is really – this is basically uh, players going back to work under duress, for the lack of a better description. Um, they're not happy about it. The owners aren't happy about it. And the difference, when all was said and done, is 10 games. Because if they had come to an agreement on, say, 65 instead of the 60 or the 70 counter proposal, they would have gotten the expanded playoff format from the players, and it wor- would have worked out much better. Not to, not, not to mention, you would have had labor peace, again, for the lack of a better description, because right. they have an agreement currently. Um, it, it's really mind-boggling. And now, like, this should have been the – this is what I was going to say to you. This should have been the easy part. The tough part is baseball getting the players comfortable that they're going to take care of them health-wise. And that's well, still to come. I've always said that this was going to – I've always said that this yes, is the have. harder part. You, you, this you is going to ha- be the harder part. But it's, it's so much harder than even the first time you said it because of all the increase in COVID-19 to, uh, infections nationwide and now all of the positive tests within organizations like with the Phillies the other day. Yeah. And uh, I just think, you know, you're going to have enough players with the fear planted in their minds and not just their minds, in their wives' minds about, you know, undertaking something like this. I just, I don't see how, look, I mean, I don't see how baseball, if they get lucky and start a season, I don't see how they end it. And if this is what baseball is dealing with now, what the hell is the NFL going to be dealing with in September and October? I mean, it's crazy. I mean, you know. It really is. You know. It is as unpredictable. uh, You're making plans for something that you have absolutely no it's 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 like trying to fly to the moon and you're about to send the first rocket up you know and you have no idea if it'll work but it's full of people <laughs> yes 
It's like the first time somebody tried ski jumping. Like, how do you yeah. do that for the first time where you're doing flips in the air? Well, we'll see what happens. Yeah. You, you know, they, Nobody knows if any of this is going to work. They don't. They don't. You know, I, I think I mentioned this to you on Thursday because I forget when I had this conversation with Howard Gutman, um, who listens to the podcast and was Obama's um, Belgian uh, ambassador. And he's been a listener to the show. And he and I had this long conversation because he's working with a company that scans, um, you know, is working on a scanner to scan for COVID-19, um, you know, something that would be put at every single stadium and arena. But anyway, to make a long story short, one of the things he said to me is they're basically all going into this um, hoping they, they don't have, they can't possibly predict what will happen. They're hoping baseball is, basketball is, the NHL is to get through this season so they can get their money from the TV networks without somebody yeah. getting seriously ill. But the first time somebody gets seriously ill or these games are so compromised because of the loss of players due to, to, due to positive tests, um, it's... Uh, Right now, especially the, the more and more we get closer to this thing, and as the positive tests keep going up nationwide and in you know spots that you thought weren't going to be hot spots and the warm weather was going to take care of all this, and we're seeing all of the increased infections, and a lot of that is probably because of the increased testing. You know, I'm not suggesting that it isn't. Um, but you know, Clemson tested 23 po- players the other day positive. Texas, that you know, how are they possibly right now going to get to a football season where they're going to have enough players that aren't in quarantine to play games? I don't know, Kevin. I don't know how they're going to do it. I mean, I'm very skeptical of their ability to be able to do it. And it's and you know, we can argue, and like you pointed out. Some of the rise in, in the coronavirus numbers are certainly related to more testing. You know, that's obvious. But it's the fear factor as well. The reality is, 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 is important, but people's fears is what you're dealing with here. Uh, you can show them the numbers that say, well, you know, you're a 25-year-old guy. Uh, your chance of, of, of dying from this is infinitesimal, you know. Uh, but the fears, the fears, it, it's what you're dealing with. And those fears, I, I think, have not diminished. I know what you've been saying, all right, and I'm taking that into consideration. I think that the last week, look, there, there are a couple things at work, in, including what you've said all along and including what we've also talked about before, especially with the NBA in particular, where you've got 22 teams and several teams probably, you know, it's a sport where even if you make the playoffs, you're not going to win a title. And you're talking about, you know, going from all of these freedoms and luxuries into a quarantined, isolated, uh, you know, Walt Disney World setting, um, which isn't, you know, the convenience of that is also, you know, a, a reality that they're starting to deal with. So it's everything. It's on the on the fear with respect to health situation increasing. Maybe it would, was always going to be there, but we've also seen a spike in positive tests, especially with athletes. Look at Novak Djokovic, you know, testing yeah. positive today. You know, this is 
this is a pretty controversial thing with him because he held this charity event in Croatia and you know he's an anti-vaccine guy and he was he was critical early on about the U.S.'s handling and whether or not he'd come back to the U.S. and play you know a tournament because it was being handled so poorly and he didn't get tested and yet players around him were getting um, were getting were testing positive and then he went back to Serbia tested positive as did his wife anyway um, we're seeing it like every day as teams get back into less of a hunkered down situation. We're reading more and more about the positive testing. So there is an increased um, concern and anxiety over the virus again and the likelihood of being infected. I think that's part of it, Tommy, is that you know, a month ago, they may have said, well, look, the infection rates are even low. And by the time we get to where we're going to be, it's where they're going to have more figured out. Well, the infections aren't going away. They're not diminishing. And and it looks like if the, these teams convene, players in their own mind are going to think, there's a pretty good chance I'll get infected. They're probably yeah. starting to think that more now than they were a month ago, is what I'm saying. Yes, I think, I think you're right. I, I think the fear factor... Uh, because we're, you know, because of the way media is today, uh, you know, you you think everything you read or everything you hear is the worst thing in the world, and we're we're, we're just inundated with information. And and you know, if you went through social media, uh, it was like, you know, like you said, Clemson positive test, Alabama positive test, Texas positive test. Uh, Spring training facility in, in Pittsburgh, the Pirates, positive test. Yeah, wherever it's they've been like gathering. All accumulated. Yeah. yeah. I know. Yeah, it's, it's just all accumulated. And it's just, I mean, you know, why, listen, I'm not being sexist. Wives are going to have a big impact on this. This is what I've said all along. In kitchens and living rooms, these discussions are going to take place. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's the great unknown. We're dealing with a uh, real unknown. I mean, we, you know, it's funny because, I mean, the reality is we deal with, with the unknown every day. But we've never been hit with it in the face, at least that I can remember, like we have been right now. And yet the truth is, even though we don't know, I'll concede, we don't really know. And maybe the virus becomes more virulent and more lethal to young healthy people without underlying diseases but right now the probability of a career-ending injury is so much greater for a young healthy no underlying diseased athlete than is getting sick from COVID-19 yeah and no you're right and they'd have no problem going back and risking career-ending injury. Now, the big story from yesterday is that Davis Bertans from the Wizards is opting out. The NBA players have until I think it's close of business tomorrow to opt out without penalty, without punishment. The NBA is offering that up to, to the players of the 22 teams that are going to restart the season in Orlando. And Davis Bertans was having 
an incredible season. You know, the Wizards decided not to trade him at the trade deadline when they probably would have gotten a first-round pick, maybe a protected first-round pick, who knows, but they would have gotten a first-round pick for for this guy for the season he's having. And for those of you not paying attention, because most of you aren't paying attention to the Wizards, Bertans came from San Antonio where he was, you know, sort of a sharp-shooting role player, and he's having a career year. He's second on the team in scoring behind Bradley Beal, averaging 15.5 points a game. He's one of the best long-range shooters in the game, and he's 6'10", 6'11", and 225. Like, this guy has got a lot of game, a lot of game. I had Tommy Shepard on the show. I had uh, Scott Brooks on the show, and I asked them both about Bertans. And the, one of the reasons they didn't trade him is they, they, they think he is a huge part of a Wizards team with John Wall back and Bradley Beal and Rui Hachimura. They think it's a really good team that Bertans is a big part of that. So they're going to take the chance. They can sign him as, a, as an unrestricted free agent, which is why they didn't trade him. Now, you know, to be truthful, they could have traded him and then signed him anyway. You know, they could have gotten yeah. the first rounder. But I think that they felt like they were making a commitment to him and telling him how much the, you know he meant to them. He has decided to opt out. He's decided to opt out of the final eight games, and there could be some playoff games after that, in part because he doesn't want to risk it. It's it's all about protecting his money. All about protecting his money. He's going to sign Absolutely. a huge. He's going to sign a huge deal. And Evan Fournier, who is a player with the Orlando Magic, um, said uh, sent out two tweets. Um, you know, atta- attached to the Berton story. This is what's wrong with the NBA nowadays. If you think it's okay to sit and watch your teammates play while you're perfectly healthy, it says a lot about you. And he's that's very critical of, of Bertans no, not going back, you know, with Bradley Beal and with Rui Hachimura and you know uh, Troy Brown Jr. and and uh, the rest the rest of the players can't even remember who's on the team now. It's been so long. <laughs> Ish Smith and Jan Mahinmi. Um, my God, Isaiah Thomas isn't there anymore. I forget who's even on the roster at this point. But anyway, um, I, I mean, on one level, I think that I'd rather see him play, but if I'm him, here's the thing. If they played the end of the regular season as scheduled without COVID-19, like no, 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 you know, nothing that happened the last four months happened, it may have been possible that the team would have sat him for the final six or seven games anyway just to protect yeah. him because they wouldn't have had anything to play for. Now technically yeah. they have something to play for, but he's not going to play. Now they got to make up two games on Orlando to get into a uh, you know, a, a two-day playoff format, you know, a tournament just to get to the eight seed to have the right to get blown out by Milwaukee. Um, but you know, th- this is—he's. Pr- I don't begrudge. I don't begrudge a guy a personal decision like this. I don't. I don't, I don't begrudge him at all. I don't. I don't begrudge him. I don't. And if I think of, I think if I were his agent, I would have suggested suggested it. And I bet the team doesn't have a problem with this. He's had two knee injuries, so you know it's they're they're not going to probably have the proper get ready for regular season games. I, I'm okay, I'm okay with it. I'm I'm not. It's did not a big see, problem to me. Did you see your guy Trevor Ariza is I, opting out? I did, but you read the reason why, right? Yeah. 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 
he's got essentially is that okay the, with you? Absolutely. Okay. Well, anything he does is okay with me. But no, ser- <laughs> but no, seriously, tre- Trevor Ariza. If you miss this, he's opting out as well. The Blazers are only a game out of the eighth spot, or something like that. I forget exactly what it is. But he's involved in a custody case over his 12-year-old son, and this next month is the opportunity for him to have a visitation period with his son, which I guess was probably scheduled for this month because it was supposed to be his off time. And so yeah. he's not, you know, uh, he's not giving up on that month with his 12-year-old son to go and try to chase the eight seed with Portland. I, I think I understand that. I bet most of his teammates understand that, don't you think? I would think so. I certainly understand it. Yeah. I mean, it's a weird thing that we're – I mean, I I have a feeling, Tommy, that that there's a pretty good chance, I don't know, at least a, a one in four chance, that 10 years from now we look back and 2020 was the year that got canceled. Every sport, COVID-19 year, every sport didn't make it. None of them I made it. I think you're right. I think you're right. We're, I mean, we're, I'm already seeing like public events, outdoor events scheduled for the fall are being canceled left and right. It's like when you look back you know, during s- some of the war years and you see, you know, the season wasn't played because yeah. we were in a war, and these yeah. guys were going off to fight a war. I mean, it's 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 a lot different, but the, it's the same thing. It's really God. Think about this, Tommy. Who we may not have. Real sports. I mean, forget. I know it's insignificant. You know, it's frivolous compared to important things. I understand that. But we may have a season with no, where where you don't have live football. How did this happen? They're playing soccer. I know. I know. I don't know. Maybe we're maybe you know maybe we're over. Yeah, I think they're all going to try to start. Well, I didn't say it was a probability. I said a one in four chance. I think it's a yeah. one in four chance now. I just I think I think it's much stronger that they don't finish. I think they'll all start. Just hope we we just need to find the medications. Once you get some medicine that's that that helps this out, then you know you've got something to feel like, like there. It's like a, a safety net. Okay, I, I got infected. Oh, you know what? I'm actually sort of getting sick here. Let me take this, and I'm going to be all better. Yeah. Unless I'm yeah. really old. Yeah. <laughs> like me. Unless, unless I'm Tommy, where the, yeah. the virus has been gunning for me since it, since it arrived. Now, speaking of, speaking of uh, the virus, and this is a very serious, sad note. Okay, so I just want to make that clear. Do you remember Alan Liu? He was a D.C. city administrator, very influential guy in the city, was, helped, you know, oversaw the rebuilding of the convention center, Nats Park, and stuff like that. What's his name? It's Alan Liu, L-E-W. No, I, d- I actually don't remember oh, that he, name. He was a very influential figure in, in getting Nats Park built, getting the new convention center built. He was a city administrator uh, when the and. You know, help bring the city from its from its corruption, bankruptcy years into its flush years. Uh, he just died from coronavirus oh. uh, complications. He was sixty nine. Did you Did you more, know him? I, I I met him a few times. Uh, very sharp, very nice man. He was, I think, 
working on the faculty of a school up in New York. He wasn't on the at, city at council, point. was he? No, he was the city administrator. Oh. He was hired he was a hired help. Got it. Hired guy. You know, but very influential, very important guy in the resurgence of DC over the past fifteen, twenty years. Hmm. Uh Tom Sherwood from uh Channel Four. NBC four, Washington broke that news. So uh I mean he was sixty nine, you know. Yeah. I mean I thought he was younger than that. So Um so what else do we have today? Um, well, I wanted to talk a little bit about a column I have coming out in tomorrow's Washington Times. Right. It'll be online later today about George Preston Marshall and the Redskins name. Let's do it. Okay. Uh, I know you've talked about this, uh, and uh, I, I, this is my first chance to write about it. And basically, uh, you know, once I got through them, you know, taking away the Marshall Memorial uh, was the right thing to do, and uh, doing away with the George Preston Marshall concourse on the on the main concourse at FedEx Field, and rename it after Bobby Mitchell. All all the right moves. Uh, the Mitchell the Mitchell move uh, is so so overdue. And I I wrote years ago that if Snyder had been smart when he first bought the team and inherited the racial legacy that the team had, that the smart thing would have been to have done, to have basically embraced the Bobby Mitchell, build a statue outside of FedEx Field that they wouldn't tear down, hopefully, right. uh, for Bobby Mitchell, and just try to diffuse some of the, uh, the baggage that came with the purchase of the team by embracing the African-American connection to the team as a result of Bobby Mitchell. Well, it took Snyder 20 years to do that, and Bobby Mitchell passed away in April, and now you know, they're going to retire his number and all that. And all that's connected to the Marshall thing. Marshall was the one who traded for Bobby Mitchell when he was forced to integrate the Redskins in 1961 when he wanted to move into the new stadium. Right. But... I also pointed out that for those people expecting the, the last remnants of the Marshall legacy, the name to fall, I said, don't hold your breath. That's not happening anytime soon. Why? Well, uh, well, for one reason, we talked about this, and you were right about this. A couple years ago, I thought, there, and I lost, I lost a Betsy on this, that the name was going to change. They had the uh, Oneida Nation... Casino boss Ray Halbreder, yeah, Halbreder, yeah, he, he's right. behind it, yeah. and he had a lot of money and a lot of corporate influence. And I thought, well, this is the guy that that that, that movement needs to get behind it in order to force the NFL to force the Redskins to change the name. Well, the the poll that came out in 2016 in the Washington Post, uh, where it showed that nine out of ten Native Americans weren't offended by the name, the same exact result from the Annenberg poll 11, 12 years earlier, that killed. That killed the, the, the momentum that they had going. And then I was, became convinced that, that the, the name is not, just not going to be changed. And now, you know, getting swept up in the Black Lives Matter movement, the name has been, has been brought into that, and it's, there's a revival of the movement to change the name. 
but you have talked about this, and I agree with you, is the financial damage to Dan Snyder from changing the name as Redskins to something else is something that he, he, can't, he can't endure. I mean, it would be devastating. It would just, it would just be, uh, I, mean, I mean, you know, it's hard enough to get people to go to the game. You're down, you're down to the core group yeah. of Redskins fans now. And these are the people that love the team and love the name. And you're and they don't and and you're going to change that name. You're going to drive them away, and then nobody's coming to the games. And there's no way the NFL is going to force Snyder to do that. Uh, they're not going to force an owner to make a move that's going to cost him money and cost them money. Yeah, it's so. I forget if I talked about this on the podcast or on radio the other day, but you and I talked about Thursday doing this, and we never got to it, but. I don't. I I have always known that. I, just remind me because I want to go back to George Preston Marshall and Bobby Mitchell um, after after this. But I, I um, I've always laughed at those people uh, who suggested that this would have been some sort of financial boon to change the name over the years. They don't know anything about brand and 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 brand loyalty. I mean, you don't see fiercely loyal customer bases <clears throat> to brands. You don't see those brands change significant parts of their brand, you know, names, logos, mascots, whatever. When you do that, you really risk valuation hits. You risk, you know, a business hit. There, it, you'd have been talking about millions versus potentially billions in valuation, millions in, in short-term, you know, short-term gain for buying new jerseys and buying the new stuff versus a big valuation hit. Now, with that said, the Redskins reached a new rock bottom at the end of last year that, you know, even we couldn't see necessarily. I mean, 10,000 people in a, in a 75,000-seat stadium where half the people there aren't even rooting for, for their home team. There was a, a level of disgust with this organization from most people. There's a percentage of you, trust me, Tommy, and I know this, um, you are, you've never been off put by anything that they've done and you never will. And you are very much in the minority of, of, of the fan base. And you see that by the deterioration, uh, deterioration of the crowds and the television numbers. I mean, they've completely, you know, sunk to, to, to new low levels. So I actually, and I think I mentioned this on radio the other day for the first time, in terms of how much it would cost them to change everything about the name and the brand, et cetera, they're probably at a point in which it makes more, it's made, it makes more sense now than ever before, Tommy, because they have sunk the value of the brand. Now, I know what Forbes says they're worth. You know, and Forbes says they're worth that because if you got a new owner in here and they did things in a different way in a market like ours that is huge with a football, you know, interest like we have here in D.C., you could turn it around very quickly, you know, and, and all of a sudden be worth three, $4 billion. And by the way, those values are basically um, – it's, it's essentially a guess as to what someone would be willing to pay. 
it they, they don't the Redskins have lost a lot of top line revenue the last couple of years, but they're in a league that benefits every single one of the teams because they share equally thirty two teams divided by the, the the money divided by thirty two teams. Anyway, it's a long way of getting to if they ever felt the pressure to do it and they actually considered it, this would probably be the time to do it because they're at such an all-time low with respect to the 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 customer base. They've lost so many customers, Tommy, because of who they are and what they've done on the field and how they've conducted themselves off the field that the fiercely loyal customer base that I used to refer to, which is one of the reasons that the brand is valued at where it is, the, a lot of those people have checked out for good. They've checked out for good. And now you may be trying to attract a whole new audience, and let's be honest about this, a, a whole a, a younger audience that's very progressive that probably isn't even considering your team because of the name, regardless of what the, what the true facts are about this and what, whether or not Native Americans have a problem with it or, or don't have a problem with it. The perception, the narrative is that it's the N-word which of course we know it isn't, and in this climate, they may have a chance of getting and gaining uh, customers if they change the name. I, again, I'm going to try to shorten this up, and I'm going to shorten it up now. If they were ever going to do it, now's probably by far and away the biggest opportunity that, that they, they would have to do it with the, um, with the lowest downside to doing it. I don't know. I, I mean, look at I'm young not recommending going it. To NF- I know. Young people aren't going to NFL games, period. Yeah, so but I don't but nobody's watching ground- their games either. <laughs> but, but I don't see this groundswell of young people all of a sudden, oh, now they've finally changed the name. Now I'm going to go. They're not going to NFL games as it is. That's an industry problem and not just a Redskins problem. I just think that but they're watching them. They, they, would lose, they would lose that core fan base. That I think a lot of those people, and they can't, he can't afford to lose anybody. Nobody's, yep. nobody's going to change their mind and go back because the name has changed. I'm not recommending it. What I'm saying to you is what they've got less to lose today than they did two years ago or four years ago or eight years ago. They Dan Snyder has single-handedly ruined one of the great brands in all of sports the last 20 years. He's ruined it. It is, it is not, according to Forbes, worth any less, and it keeps increasing in value, but so does every NFL franchise. And a big market NFL franchise with a, an untapped, which you could almost call like the Redskin fan base untapped now because it hasn't been served in so long, um, th- that's why the value is where it is. I don't think, you know, I think it's still a risk. It's just less of a risk. But back to the polling again. So, um, look, that 2016 Washington Post poll, you know, and I, I've i seen everything that people have sent me about the other poll from recently from Stanford and Michigan. 
you know, that that reflected still a minority amount of Native Americans, but a much higher than 10 percent percentage of Native Americans that have a problem with it. And just like all of these polls, Tommy, if you don't like the results, you can you can find problems with the methodology. You know, that was the problem with the 2004. It was outdated. It wasn't done the right way. Uh, And then 2016, here comes the post poll, by the way, conducted by a newspaper that was hoping for the opposite result than it actually got, which gave the result even more credibility for a lot of people. But the people that didn't like those results said the methodology was wrong. It was a it was a phone-based poll where they were relying on the person um, that said that they identified as a Native American to be uh, to be honest. And then this newest poll is online, but it's sort of skewed to younger individuals. There's some issues with that one. Look, bottom line is I don't think that, you know, um, there's this incredible clamoring from Native Americans. I haven't seen proof of that to change the name. But I do believe that the last three to four weeks have produced a total resurgence from from uh, people uh, in desiring the name to be changed. And now, you know, along with statues falling left and right, this is another statue that needs to fall. And people are writing about it. You know, our good friend Barry Zverluga, who I love dearly, and I think he's brilliant, wrote about it. And he said some things in that story that I still think are are a problem. I still think my idea, Tommy, and I'm not sure anybody else shares it. Maybe somebody else had it first. I don't care. But language evolves, Okay, and so the dictionary defined racist term that Redskins is, you know, refers to a word that was used in a way in which the dictionary defines it over 75 years ago. It's time for a second non-pejorative, non-derogatory definition, Redskins noun, the team that plays pro football in Washington, D.C., I think that that would solve a lot of problems, not with everybody. But, Tommy, you know, the other thing I thought of is Goodell, we've been seeing him speak out more than ever recently. We don't even know if it's been with owner support on on lots of different things, including, you know, Kaepernick and kneeling and all of that. Uh, would it shock you if Goodell came out in the next week, you know, and said, I think it's time for the Redskins to consider changing their name? Yes, it would. Okay. It would shock me. Now, let me make it clear. I don't care what they're called. Okay? <laughs> I know. I mean, I, I don't think I'm if less... they change the name tomorrow, it'd be fine with me. I don't particularly care. So, But I just don't think that, I just think that, uh, that even with how low the Redskins franchise has sunk in terms of fan support, I just don't see them thinking that uh, Snyder could be the guy to bring them back no matter what they're named. I'll tell you what we won't get, and if we do, it would really be revealing of intelligence. We're not going to get another statement from the owner that says, never, ever, in capital letters, no. on the name. You know, if he had handled all of this with a bit more finesse, um, and thought through, listen, let's be open-minded to this. Maybe, you know, the idea of a second, you know, di- because the dictionary definition is the walk-off moment for all of the people that want the name changed. It's their one thing. Well, it's in the dictionary. It's defined as a, an insensitive term. It's dictionary-defined racist. What else do you need to know? It's the N-word. Well, I mean, 
it's not the N-word, as we know. I mean, that's the most, still the most ridiculous comparison, and it bothers me when it gets compared to that because it's not a reasonable discussion when you, when you exaggerate to that level. We still have Native American high schools in this country that have Redskins as their t- school nickname. We don't have one primarily black high school that's got the N-word as their team nickname. There's no Washington Post that says 9 out of 10 blacks say that the N-word doesn't really bother them. I mean, they're, they're just not comparable. So we got to stop it with that. But it would be nice to see him, you know, uh, at least steer clear of being defiant on it. Even if he is, he shouldn't be defiant publicly. I don't think you'll see that. Not anymore. There are a lot of people that believe this is, this is coming soon. More than ever before. That original bet we have, I remember right now, it was, for, it was, we must have had the bet in 2014 because it was by the end of 2016, you were convinced the name would be changed. Yeah. Um, I wanted to just go back real quickly <clears throat> to the George Preston Marshall thing and the Bobby Mitchell thing from the other day. Um, I'm thrilled, and I talked about this on the podcast without you um, the other day. I'm, I'm thrilled that Bobby Mitchell's jersey is retired. And I went through you know, the jerseys that I think should be retired. I think the Redskins should. I'm ready for the Redskins to, to, to retire jerseys. I think that they can do that, and there's seven of them to me that are absolute no-brainers, um, and you just do it, and you, know, and, and you go from there. But it's too bad that Bobby Mitchell's jersey wasn't retired when he was alive. Yeah. That, that's number one. Um, this was a special person, too. He was such a warm, decent person and was so significant in the NFL and so significant in this organization, which was the last organization in the league to integrate, uh, forced by, as you said, the federal government who owned the land where the stadium, where D.C. Stadium was built to do it. They, uh, you know, they traded Ernie Davis, who eventually had leukemia and passed away before he ever played one down um, for Bobby Mitchell. And Bobby Mitchell became the first black player to play for the Redskins. And by the way, his career without being a significant, you know, integrator of the last uh, integrated team, his career alone on production was a Hall of Fame career. Like this guy would would have been worthy of having a jersey retired anyway. He was a great player. But there were a couple things. Number one, why the hell was George Preston Marshall's statue still up at RFK after all these years? I mean, I understand that. I know. That it, it, I, I, I mentioned this. I didn't know it was still up there, and that's on me. And maybe that's part of what we're all learning here is to be, you know, we should know that and we should advocate for, you know, it being taken down. To have an overt racist like George Preston Marshall's statue out in front of RFK Stadium, you know, is really, you know, I think a lot of this statue stuff is. Um, is really crazy right now. But an overt racist or an overt Confederate, you know, uh, from the Civil War, and I thought this that's what it was about to begin with. It's obviously morphed into much more than that here over the last uh, week or so. But I can't believe his statue was still up there. And I can't believe that that floor, that level at FedEx Field was still named after him. I know. That's just stunning. I never realized that. And I'll, I've I've FedEx Field every Sunday right. for home games for years, and it just I just never put the two and two together. Yeah, I mean it's it's really um, 
it's it goes hand in hand with this organization handing out Bobby Mitchell's number to Leonard Stevens in 2003, which is what Spurrier did. And, you know, it went past. No, Everybody picked up on Sonny's jersey being, being given to Shane Matthews. Nobody picked up on Bobby Mitchell's number being given out to Leonard Stevens. That was a disgrace. I remember talking about it at the time. I wasn't in radio. I remember talking about it as a fan and being totally surprised that the organization had done that. And, you know, they apologized for it, but that was the rift. That ended the relationship between Bobby Mitchell and the organization. And he was such a class act, he didn't want to bring Leonard Stevens into the middle of it because it wasn't Stevens' fault. He wasn't. No. And so he never he never really made a big stink out of it. And even his family with, with the jersey being retired, what class, all of their quotes, from his wife to his daughter to his son about oh, all of this. Yeah. Um. I don't know. It's... I mean, because, because he, he resented oh, Snyder. No doubt. Yeah. No doubt. They, I mean, once Sonny, once Spurrier gave Sonny's jersey, remember to Shane Matthews, there was this incredible, yeah. and, you know, Snyder, the, 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 it's another, it's sort of proof in something I've always felt, which is Snyder claims to have been this devout, you know, hardcore fan his whole life. He's, he wasn't the kind of fan that a lot of us were. You know, he just he just wasn't. I don't think he really was into it like some of us were when we were kids and, and teenagers. Um, but he had the opportunity because of wealth to become one of the cool kids after many years of probably not being anywhere close to that. And he bought the team. And as part of buying yeah. the team, he talked about how, you know, his dad had taken him to games and he was this incredible fan who didn't know about number 49 and didn't even know about number nine until there was out, an outcry over it. Really? You're going to give away Sonny's number to Shane Matthews? <laughs> and, and you did give away Bobby Mitchell's number to Leonard Stevens? That, that, whole, that whole stretch there was was wrong um anyway when's your statue coming down well here's (laughs) i want let me drive real let me drive off the road oh boy okay okay now uh you made a point of ridiculing me and this is about politics you made a point of ridiculing me when i suggested that uh trump might not leave office if he loses the election right uh, and, of course, after that, we had a week's worth of articles by people much smarter than you who suggested the same thing. And then yesterday, well, no, I mean, we I, had I suggested all the people declare, that you weren't the first one to suggest it. And uh, you you and Bill Trump Maher and Michael declare, Moore and a lot of people have been suggesting that. They're going to continue to suggest that. But go ahead. Trump already declared yesterday <clears throat> that the election, 2020 election rigged. Yeah. You know, setting the stage for this. Right. Okay, let me let me introduce this possibility to you. What do you think the chances are that Donald Trump and Joe Biden get in a fist fight during the uh, debates? In in Biden's basement? No, no. If they have debates, are they? Are, don't you think with Biden they're gonna they're gonna hope that they're virtual? No. Let's get with the program here. Okay. Fist fight on stage. Um, the odds on that. Are I don't know long shot. They're not going to get into a fist fight. Just no? like they're not going to have to send in you know the D.C. police to pull them out of, of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. That's not going to happen either. Okay, <laughs> I think there's a chance they get in a fist fight. 
Well, Biden's, think, Biden's think, got I, the temper, right? Biden's yes, the, he does. Yeah, Biden's got the short fuse, tough guy yeah. ability. At least we think of him that way, or we used to think yeah, of him that and, way. And Trump, <clears throat> if he does that circle and stuff that he did with Hillary yeah. during their debate, oh, that would be great. Biden, Biden will, tur- Biden will turn, him, turn around and slap him. I, haven't I said this to you before? How is it, and maybe it's happened and we just don't know about it, how is it with somebody that is so has such a bully tendency and then on top of that is so limited intelligence-wise, how is it that somebody like Trump being in his many big meetings in New York over his many years, professional years, how is it that he didn't get his ass kicked in several times, let alone once? How is it that, that somebody is, I, in New York didn't come over a boardroom table and beat the living crap out of him at some point? You know, maybe he's tougher than, than, than we think. Give him credit for it. Tommy. I, Tommy, it, there are people is. that live to take on the tough guy in New York. I know. I mean, you're going to tell me that somebody, you know, that, that, got, that got bullied in, in a meeting or looked at this dude and realized what a despicable human being he is, didn't go after, uh, across the table after him after he called him a name? I, I just can't believe that that didn't happen. But we would have it heard is. of it at this point, don't you think? Yeah, I would think so. I would think so. It is surprising that this guy has, hasn't gotten beaten up before. <laughs> right. But uh, maybe unless it'll be he's, Biden. Unless he's walked into every meeting with security people. That may be true. But still, I know a lot of dudes Listen, that wouldn't I, have cared I, about that. They would have they would have gotten to him somehow, some way. I saw him at Yankee Stadium when I was covering the playoffs. He was sitting in the box, plexiglass separating us right next to me. He didn't have any security around him. I mean, Tommy, there are people I know that just the cheating in golf, those stories are legendary with this guy. What a serial cheater he is in the game of golf. You know, if there was any real money involved in any of these matches, it's amazing he didn't get his ass kicked after one of those. I don't know. I, I, t- what, what was your so Biden versus Trump fist fight odds? I don't know, but that would be. I mean, this would go hand in hand with your September October yes. uh, October tumultuous, you know, uh, run up to the election period, which you know I don't disagree with. I think we could be headed for a lot of that in the fall. Look, I just think anything is possible. Yeah, anything is is possible. It's funny how he just, you know, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. It's, okay. it's, it's surprising to me that as much as he mouths off on Twitter, um, that the Seattle situation actually hasn't been solved by, quote, law and order, closed quote. That would be one of those where I would think at this point there'd be an overwhelming desire by most normal people to end that experiment. But apparently not. Yes. Apparently not. Uh, apparently not. <laughs> All right. Uh, did we cover it today? I think we did. All right. We're done for the day. Uh, don't forget I'm on radio 6 to 9 a.m. every morning on the Team 980. Uh, also 95.9 FM, the Team 980 app, the theteam980.com. Uh, so listen in then as well. All right. Enjoy the day back tomorrow.